0: Hey everyone! Welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kamira, and today on our panel we have Tom Rossi. I'm Rossi. Yep. And we have John Epperson. Hello. And we have a new panelist, Luke Sutters.
1: Great to be here.
0: Luke, do you just want to give us a quick introduction of who you are and some of the things that you're doing? Sure.
1: I fell into software development about 10 years ago, working for a small startup that eventually led me to work in the USA. Then I fell into working for a multinational for a bit and kind of jetting around, doing less development myself. And uh, now I'm working for an aerospace startup, and uh, I wanted to get more involved in the programming community, particularly Ruby, which is really fantastic language once you've tried a few different ones. thought to be a great way to kind of get back in touch with the Ruby community.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we always read about different articles, like what good is Ruby for outside of web development? I like to see Ruby send someone to the moon. That'd be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And today we have a special guest, Daniel Colson. Greetings.
2: Resolve Digital helps build, optimize, and maintain e-commerce, SaaS, and other products built on Ruby on Rails. They can help build new applications from scratch, rescue projects in bad shape, provide ongoing development and maintenance for existing projects, augment your existing team with experienced Rails developers. They also specialize in Solidus and Spree Commerce solutions. Go check them out at resolve.digital.
0: All right, Colson, would you mind explaining some of the things that you're working on, who you are, why you're famous?
3: (laughs) I don't don't know if I am famous, but um, I am a developer. I work at ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is maybe Ruby famous because we have done a bunch of work in Ruby on Rails. We also have posted a lot of articles about Ruby and Rails on our blog. And we also have a bunch of open source projects, some of which are pretty popular in the Ruby community. I happen to be the maintainer of a couple of them, uh, factory bot and factory bot rails. So I spend a good chunk of time working on those. And also, I have a, a completely unrelated background as a former professor of music.
0: Awesome. Well, it's great to have you on. So, uh, how does someone? I guess let's start off with how does someone make that jump from being a musician to being a programmer?
3: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I'm I'm still trying to figure out how that happened myself.
4: And not just a musician. I feel like you were invested in academia, like you were you were in it.
3: Yeah, yeah. I I went far down the road. I went to school as a composer, ended up going through grad school, getting most of the way through a, a doctoral degree. I wrote a dissertation, did not revise that dissertation because the the career change kind of came before I finished it. But yeah, was was going down the path of being an academic, did a bunch of adjunct teaching in New York, um, eventually got a visiting assistant professorship out in California. Part of it was how competitive the field is and the fact that I had to move away from my wife for a year while I was teaching in California. The end of that was like still probably several years off. There weren't enough jobs for me to to be picky about location. And I guess the, the other part that kind of drove me out of it was, was feeling like it was becoming increasingly challenging to learn new stuff. I, I got into academia because I thought I'd be learning about music all the time and getting deeper and deeper into it. But I was, I was teaching so much that I didn't have a lot of time to actually continue that learning and continue practicing my instrument and continue writing music, all of that stuff that kind of got me into it initially. I loved teaching and, and still really do but I wanted that, that learning piece as well. So how did I get to programming? My, my dad was a, a, a developer as well. He um, had lots of like, uh, C++ books lying around the house. I never opened those. I was never interested in any of that growing up.
4: Mm-hmm. Was um, he a musician as well?
3: He was not a musician, no, no, no. Although he, he encouraged it. But, but yeah, so he, he was a developer for what, the, what that is worth. I had no idea what he was doing at the time. It's been fun to go back and, and talk about things after the fact. He was building version control software at one company. He was working for a company called Rational Software, which now is, seems very cool. But when I was a kid, I was like, who cares? But, but I got into programming kind of through music. I was writing electronic music in an audio DSL called C-Sound. So that's where I learned how to write conditionals and loops and things like that, was, was trying to produce music with this, this audio DSL. And then as I sort of got more frustrated with academia, I spent more and more time taking online courses to like learn HTML and CSS and eventually Ruby. Never really thinking that it would be a career, but it was just kind of a fun thing and it felt like a, a valuable skill Just like knowing how technology works when it's everywhere. So at the end of this year in California, being frustrated as I was with academia, not wanting to move away from my wife again for a year, she actually got a dog while I was in California and moved from (laughs) Queens to Brooklyn. So I came back to New York and was like, oh, we have a dog. Cool. (laughs) Um, So, you know, if I went away for another year, what would come next after a dog? I don't know.
4: (laughs) What is involved in the, the audio DSL? What, is that, what does that look like? Is that similar to a coding type language?
3: Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're writing code. Um, you write these... It's been a while since I looked at it, and I didn't have a lot of the concepts back then that I probably have now. So it might be worth going back and looking at. But my recollection is that you basically write these functions that like represent the, the sort of instrument. So there's one... There's one part of the file, which is like defining all of the instruments. And then another part of the file, which is like the score where, where you're like calling these functions and passing them arguments, like play at this time for this duration with this intensity. And, and you kind of build up, build up the score that way. It was, it was a combination of things. There was like a, a markup syntax to define which part of the file you were in. Like are you in this instrument defining part of the file or are you in the like score part of the file? And then within that, it was, I want to say like C like, but but you didn't really have to care about memory.
4: And this is what's so so interesting because you talk to people all the all the time who are convinced that you know programming is just too foreign for them. But the way you're describing, even in the music, like that, there's real similarities there of creating loops to put them together to create a score and that's sure, really interesting, definitely,
3: definitely. There's also like pattern recognition, pattern recognition, and like copying. I think the way I learned how to write things with C sound was by finding examples of things in C sound and just messing around with them.
4: C sound the the language, or is that the the app that's, environment that's the
3: the language yeah there there is like an environment as well i don't mm-hmm. remember the name of it but but yeah that, that kind of like process of copying a thing and then like playing around with it to make it your own is very much related to what happens in music like that's one way of learning music is you hear a thing you imitate the thing you kind of like gradually adopt it as your own thing mm-hmm. um, it's definitely definitely part of Part of what it is to be a musician is listening and
4: copying. <laughs> and part of what yeah. it means to be a coder as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. Definitely copied but, some code. And then- uh, you know, it's yeah. funny, though, is I found that the transition is not bi-directional. So as a musician, you can learn development. But as a developer, you cannot learn music. For example, whenever I go to a website, I can't help but to think how they constructed certain parts of it. As I'm clicking around, I'm like, oh yeah, they're doing this or using this kind of technology or like, oh God, infinite scrolling or whatever the case. But then I was at church the other day with my wife and as we were listening to the people perform on stage, I was trying to isolate different instruments, not even identify the keys because I have no idea what different keys are, but just being able to identify the different instruments to see how things how something was composed, and I was just completely lost. I could hear the drum and I could hear the singer, but that was about the only identifiable things that can make up. So it's definitely not a bi directional profession, uh, at least for me.
3: I That's... don't know if I agree. The fact that you're like actively listening to this music and trying to identify instruments is already really interesting to me. Like, there's a way of listening to music, which is just you kind of let it pass over you and, and, I don't know, you feel something. I, I don't know how to listen to music that way, which is why I can't really describe it. But, but like you're actively listening to music in a way that I think a lot of people don't. I don't know if that's related to being a programmer or not, but there might be more there than you, you think there is.
1: You're reverse engineering the song.
4: Yeah, if you there could visualize you the song, then you could reverse engineer it. You could take it apart. You could see the repetition. You could see the patterns. I think it's hard for someone like me as well. Like I can't, I can't tell the difference between... Songs and keys and instruments, like I, I can enjoy it. But if I were to visualize it, I think that would be really interesting.
5: There is a sort of scientific aspect to music too, right? And and bringing that over is perfectly okay. I mean, shoot. So also a music nerd here, right? Like, I mean, you did a bunch of music theory, Daniel, right? Like, what is that? You're just breaking down patterns, and this is what this pattern looks like. This is what a perfect fifth is. This is what this is how we used to write vocal. Like you're just doing that. That's all cool. You're just you're just starting at stage one, Dave. You're comparing yourself to somebody who's like 20 years ahead of you, and and giving up too quick.
0: <laughs> yeah, my older brother, he's an audiophile, so his basement he has all the soundboards and padded rooms and all that stuff. You know, my basement, I have just server racks. So definitely, <laughs> we went in two different directions there.
5: It's a different kind of sound. It's a white noise sound.
0: I'm thinking about
3: music theory being like building up layers of abstractions. So, like calling a thing a perfect fit, like naming it something so that you can can like have that sound as that concept. And then building up more layers on top of that. It's like, uh, what does it mean to, to hear a perfect fifth unfolding over long spans of time or something? There's just like a whole theory built, built up out of that. And, and we do the same sorts of things there in software as well. So like, maybe it would be hard for a musician to be able to like come into software and be able to like identify those abstractions. I think that takes a long time, actually. It takes, takes similar kind of training. Like you can come in and like write a for loop and things like that. But like getting those larger sorts of things are more challenging.
5: Yeah. I I, I mean, I would argue they are really analogous to one another, right? You spend a lot of time learning, okay, you know this thing that you've heard a thousand times before because you're a musician and you're singing or you're playing or something, right? This is what we call it. In the same way, in programming, you start out writing all these loops and if statements and you're completely lost. And then someday you pick up a pattern book and they're like, this is this pattern. And you're like, oh my gosh, I've been doing that for so long. Or you learn it in class or something like that. Right. And then then they say, when you do this thing in music, we just say it evokes this kind of feeling, right? Like so power chords like make you feel strong. Those are the easy, like those are low-hanging fruit, really easy for me to grab for. You know, they make you feel awesome, right? And uh, in the same way, you're just like doing this pattern in computer science, and we say, "Hey, you know, if you use factory pattern, now you can take that if statement that's like thirty lines long in your controller, go give it to an object whose job it is to to handle your branching conditions here, and look like now we're like we're telling you, this is good for this place, this is good for that place it's really very analogous in my in my experience, I
3: think, I think both also have the uh, the tendency to for people to learn a pattern and then for a while use that pattern for every problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, whoa, this is awesome! I can use this everywhere!" And like gradually, you maybe move on to some other patterns as well.
4: This sounds like a project uh, where w- what we should do is is take code and turn it into music. And then we can use that to identify code smell <laughs> when things like go off.
2: When it wow, makes- wow. <laughs>
4: then you know you've, you've broken your pattern or you've done something that's, that falls into that category.
5: I, I do find code to have an art to it. To me, code smells are... I get the same feeling in my head with code, like things that I think are like code smells that I do when I hear a piece of music that I think sounds bad, quote unquote, right? Like to me, it's an art. like it's an aesthetic reaction in me. It's not a scientific thing. And so I find something that I'm just like, oh, this is a code smell. And then I have to spend a bunch of time like in my own head being like, well, this is... I have to come up with words to express to you why I think that your code sucks, basically. Pardon my French. Yeah.
4: I mean, I think that's why we love Ruby, right? Because Ruby puts value on that in, in the language. That's why we love the language is because we can look at it and say, oh my gosh,
0: that looks beautiful. This is beautiful code and other Mm -hmm. languages may not.
5: It's aesthetically pleasing somehow.
0: You know, I might be the minority here, but I I dislike that term code smells. You know, (laughs) I I prefer code compromises. You know, we've compromised here because of this reason or this decision. So whatever it could be, you know, uh, it could be having Elasticsearch on a really small application. You know, we made a compromise of we think we're going to Need this kind of complexity. So let's just go ahead and add it in. But instead, we added a lot of complexity to our application without the real justification for it. Does that kind of make sense? So, you know, while the code might even be formatted good, we're still making some kind of compromise here or there because of some rationale that we had at that time. You know, it might become valid and no longer a quote code smell later. But I think we all kind of make compromises as we develop software. There's always going to be some kind of compromise. For example, this one time, I thought it was a good idea to store data binaries, so images, in my database as a record. Because I'm only storing uh, two to three kilobyte images. Super tiny. Like Think of it like an icon. That's not that big of a deal. It's going to be super tiny. No big deal, right? Fast forward... This application is still running eight years later. That one table has over 20 million records now and is a couple hundred gigabytes. So at that time, it was a good justification or a good, quote, compromise because we only thought this application was going to be around for two years max, but it's still around today. And you know now you have that issue. So... I think of it as more of compromises instead of code smells.
1: Maybe a code fragrance.
0: Mm. <laughs> so,
1: so
5: I, my quick response would just be: I think that your compromise underneath is what causes <laughs> the code smell, right? Because the code smell is my non—it's <laughs> yes. my non-contextual. Like, I just got a waft of something, and I'm like, something's wrong here, but I don't know what it is yet, right? And and then I dig down, and I find the compromise, right? And then I might, I might. Be like, oh well, I don't have the context to revert this, or 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 maybe I do. Maybe I. It's time we got to remove all this stuff out of the database and go upload every single one of these files to S3 and call it a day, right? Maybe it's yep. that time.
4: There's a valid why behind the smell, right, or the compromise, however you want to say it. There may be yep. a valid why for it, but it doesn't change the fact that when you look at it, you cringe. You're like, oh gosh, <laughs> it's still in there. Can't go fix it. You know, like I don't have time to to go back and convert all these images or do this different thing. And so you look at it and, and that's that feeling that we were talking about when you look at it. You just kind of cringe on the inside. And it, it, a lot of times we, we move it. We try to isolate the ugliness. So that way, uh, when you do get the time, you can go get it. But why do we isolate it? Well,
0: for one, is because we don't want to see it. <laughs> we want to minimize the impact on the rest of the code. Yeah. So I guess the uh, motto is, Coding is, your code is kind of like roast beef. If you leave it out for too long, it might start to smell. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway... if it
3: smells, you might want to like take an extra minute in deciding whether to eat it. Is, it, is this
5: metaphor for <laughs> We might be stretching it really far now.
4: I think we went from music <laughs> to food and uh, I don't know.
5: Okay, so so now that you're a developer, right? Like... One of the things, one of your claims to fame, right, is now you run Factory Bot. I, I don't. When did that change from Factory Girl to Factory Bot? By the way, this is a lead well, into my actual question. It's been
3: it's been a few years now.
5: Okay, I haven't used Factory Girl on a project in a few years, so
4: we use I mean, Factory Girl on all of our projects, and so going back and renaming it
1: <laughs> was an experience. Oh no! That was
4: one of those oh. things. Yeah. <laughs> Like we had to because, uh, you know, we're, we're actively developing on those projects.
3: There was, um, there was definitely like some, some noise about the rename. For most projects, it was as simple as like running a one-line script to just rename everything all at once. People made probably more noise than they needed to about, about that. I mean, I think for most people, it was probably a fairly easy change. There were probably some cases where it was not an easy change. But but like ultimately, it didn't seem worth it to have a a piece of software whose name was gendered. Sure. Just like
5: why? <laughs> I, I never understood it either. It's all good. I just lived with it. Oh, so my actual question for you was going to be so now that now that uh, apparently everyone knows about this and I'm the only one that didn't. So you are not the original author or maintainer of Factory uh-huh. Bot. How how is it like picking up someone else's project and becoming a maintainer? That's super interesting to me because one, I've never done that, but two, I don't yep. know I've ever heard anyone address that question.
3: Factory bot was originally written by our CTO here at ThoughtBot, Joe Ferris. And it was written as a a replacement for fixtures. But it's a factory bot for folks who don't use it, is um library that helps you create test data. So if you need and objects for say an integration test, and you need it to be a valid object saved in the database, but you don't want to have to, in your test, specify like the many attributes that are required to make that object valid. So you can save it to your database. You can call factorybot.create with whatever attributes you do happen to care about in that test. It'll put it in the database. It's a fully valid object with all the attributes that you like specifically need and all the ones that are like required. So uh, that was written, I think quite a while back. Uh, I'm not sure how many years, but I think it's been around a long time. I'm gonna guess 10, but I'm, I'm not sure. And, and it was very different back then too. I, I've uh, checked out some old commits just out of curiosity. It's like a completely different library. Eventually Josh Clayton, who is a, a development director in the ThoughtBot Boston office, took it over and added a whole bunch of features. I think he added traits and maybe transient attributes and, and all kinds of stuff, rebuilt a lot of the guts of the library, maintained it for a bunch of years. And then my understanding is that he gradually stopped maintaining it around the time he became a, a development director at Boston. in Boston just a lot of other, other things on his plate. And also the library was fairly stable like mostly feature complete definitely some bug reports that that came in and there were like at one point something like 50 open issues and maybe 50 open pull requests or something like that when i came on came on i got interested in factory bot before joining thoughtbot i was very much in the like thoughtbot fan club was using thoughtbot libraries reading thoughtbot blog posts listening to the podcasts i had the t-shirt actually i'm wearing a thoughtbot t-shirt right now that I. That I had even before I worked here.
5: Nice.
3: I was like big time into Thoughtbot and thought it would be fun to start contributing to some of their open source projects. Factory Bot seemed like an obvious choice because it's a very popular library that I had used in many projects. Turns out the code in Factorybot is really complicated. There's a lot of metaprogramming. So I spent a whole bunch of time just sitting with the code and reading through it, trying to make sense of it. And this ended up
4: right out of code school?
3: Uh, yeah, this is, yeah, after I graduated uh, App Academy, which is a coding boot camp. I think, uh, so I, I graduated App Academy, I worked there for a year as an instructor, which was a kind of a nice transition between the the teaching life and the programmer life. And then got another job after that. And I think that's that's where I started digging into open source.
4: We got the first, open, the first source open source, source project, project you jumped in on?
3: That's a great question. I... Don't remember. I was looking into Rails probably around the same time, like various Rails libraries. The first one may have been JBuilder, and then maybe AREL, which is now merged into Rails itself, but used to be a standalone library. But FactoryBot was definitely like fairly early in, in my explorations as an open source developer. But yeah, I, I ended up uh, making a couple of PRs to FactoryBot and then wrote a blog post on my personal blog about how FactoryBot works, kind of digging into as much of the metaprogramming stuff as I could. After that, ended up applying and joining ThoughtBot and found out that the library was not really maintained anymore, that Josh Clayton had like announced to the company that I'm stepping down from maintainership and whoever's interested can take over, I'll, I'll help you. and. That had been posted like several months before I joined and nobody had responded, I think. So I sort of naturally fell into it by just continuing to do what I had done before ThoughtBot, but now with Commit Access. After that, the the process was like going through all the open issues, going through all the open pull requests, figuring out what the patterns were, closing things or fixing things. So, So a lot of it's been that, just like, trying to respond to the stuff that's still open. At one point, I did finally get FactoryBot Rails down to zero open issues and pull requests. FactoryBot isn't quite there yet. There's some, still some big meaty issues that are left. So, so it's that. And then the other big piece that I, that I see as my job as a maintainer of a fairly stable library is just upgrading stuff. It's like making sure it works on the latest Rails, the latest Ruby, and that that is just an ongoing ongoing process. I kind of like upgrading stuff. I don't know. I, not everybody feels that way, but I'm into
1: it. Do you, do you think the reason why no one picked it up is because it's fundamentally quite a hard gem to maintain because of, like you said, the really deep metaprogramming that it needs to work?
3: Yeah, I think that's, that's got to be part of it. There's, there's libraries like, like RSpec is another one that I think is full of a lot of metaprogramming and, and it's probably really hard to get into maybe i should ask ask the folks over there how they end up getting getting their maintainers but yeah it's a it's a tough library to understand but the the like friendliness as a user i think is really nice it's like moving all the complexity into the library instead of making the person who's using the library do all that work i definitely appreciate it. but yeah it's 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 a challenging piece of software
0: why would someone choose to use FactoryBot over the provided fixtures in Rails?
3: I predicted that question. And I don't actually have a great answer because I have never been on a project that uses fixtures, believe it or not. I've worked on a bunch of Rails projects and they've all already had factory bot, or like at ThoughtBot, we would be using ThoughtBot's suspenders library, which mm-hmm. generates a Rails app with some stuff that we like to use and factory bots already in there as well. But that said, so, so like I haven't ever, ever felt the pain of using fixtures, but my understanding is that, that one of the things that came up when using fixtures was the idea of a mystery guest. You would have a test that's like, assert user dot name is Daniel. It's like, uh, what? Okay. W- w- why? Why is it Daniel? Where, where is that coming from? And like, it's because there's some fixture file somewhere that happens to have a string Daniel in it. Certainly you can, you can have that same problem with factory bot if you like, are relying on things from your factory definitions within your tests. But it, it makes the tests really hard to read because you, you don't really know why that like, string... That this, in that case, the string Daniel would be the mystery guess. because like, where did this come from? Why are we asserting that, that user.name is Daniel as opposed to, to Jane or something? Again, I haven't actually used fixtures, so, so I, I haven't felt that particular pain myself.
4: We actually started with fixtures and then um, started using Factory Girl at the time. And now we use a combination. So we still use fixtures for some basic uh, stuff that we need. And then we use factories for everything else. And for us, it's a phenomenal way to be able to create like, exactly like you said, you can look at a test and see the attributes that really you want to test by the way that you populate your, your factory. So whatever you're passing into the factory, that's probably what you're testing. And so it makes it more clear as opposed to just loading the fixture and you know, asserting that the name is Daniel. And so f- for us, we, we use a combination of fixtures and factories, but we, we, we're we big fans.
3: This problem of mystery guess comes up a bunch in the, the Rails codebase. Like I find a lot of the tests in Rails itself really difficult to read because there'll be like a there's a directory full of models and the tests assert various things but you have to you have to go and open the other file where the model lives because the test by itself doesn't really make any sense. So yeah, it sounds like the same basically the same sort of problem of the mystery guest.
5: I feel like we should get somebody on who has some super awesome and strong opinions about this because I feel like we're we're preaching to the choir a little bit here.
0: I, I can push I can, back.
3: Yeah, I was going to say I can <laughs> push back too, but I'd rather have you do it.
4: Well, I, I think, and I can speak to it as well, because like I said, we went, we went full on from fixtures to factories, but then we recognized there were good things about fixtures, not having to hit the database every time and not having yeah. to redefine the same thing that we use in probably 90% of our tasks, especially when you're in the unit tests. But we subscribe to that thinking like the Rails if you look at the Rails test code, there are things that you just know from looking at the fixtures, that there's posts and authors and, and what that, that looks like. We subscribe to that in our apps, that there is a narrative played out in the fixtures. Uh, you can follow that narrative or you can go use factories to go create a whole new narrative that's totally different.
5: Which is a, is a compromise, right?
4: You call it code smell?
5: No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So for me, this is the, the this is not compromise in a negative sense at all. Like this is good kind of compromise. It's saying, look, fact, factories give me a certain thing that I want, right? Fixtures give me a certain thing that I want. I should use the right tool for the right thing. I, I remember reading blo- a bunch of blog posts like a few years ago where everybody's like, don't use factories because then your tests will be slow, and I'm. And, and, and I, I'm not of that opinion. I think that your tests are slow because you wrote, like you subscribe to some idea, you maybe had super complicated like state that your app requires baked into your, your fabricators or your factories, whatever, you're, you know, whatever library you're using or whatever, right? And you, all of a sudden your tests are slow because you have to build this stuff every single time that you build a new widget or whatever, right? But and fixtures are fantastic at maintaining that base state really fast. You don't have to go back to your database, things like that. But as you point out, right, as soon as you get to the point where you're just like, well, I need a new user with a name that I'm dictating. And these now your fixture list is super long, or you only have four names because you're like really trying hard to like take care of your fixture list, you know. Anyway, you just get into a world where fixtures don't work as well. They don't scale well when you get large apps.
3: I think it would be really cool to have a library that looks sort of like FactoryBot, but somehow under the hood was using preloaded, like, fixture-type data. I don't know if that's possible, but... but Magic? It's been floating, floating around my head. Like, if we could just, like, have a bunch of stuff already in the database, but refer to it like a Factory bot create kind of thing,
5: I don't know. I feel like you're walking out on the ice alone right now.
2: are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled are you wondering where to hear your javascript heroes like amy knight and douglas crockford and chris heilman after the cancellations i decided to put on a javascript conference for you online i invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule the conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. JSRemoteConf.com
0: So my pushback on factory FactoryBot is simply it does not come included with Rails. It's something that promotes developer happiness, not actual not actual benefit to the end user, so to say. So um, this pushback comes from my experience with RSpec, which is hands down my favorite testing framework. But even though it's my favorite testing framework, I don't use it over Minitest now. I prefer Minitest, even though it's not my favorite, because that comes included with the Rails core. And my pushback is, if you've ever upgraded a Rails application from 2.0 to 3 to 4 to 5 to 6, it is a nightmare dealing with dependencies. So stripping back as many dependencies as possible is going to make my application easier to upgrade in the future. And so that's my main pushback. Not to say that uh, factory FactoryBot is not good in any way, shape, or form. I like it. I've used it in many projects in the past and some that I still maintain. But on any new applications, I try to stick as close to the, quote, Rails way as possible.
4: Yeah, I think that goes to John's point. Of it's the right tool uh, to solve the thing that you're trying to solve. And so you should always start with fixtures, I believe. Uh, and all, all of our projects, like I said, we, we use fixtures. But you'll recognize when all of a sudden I'm creating I'm creating too many fixtures. Like I'm, I'm creating this one-off scenario and I'm going to go create a fixture for that. And you get to the point of, now I want to use factories because I want to, I want to create not just one, but I want to create 20.
0: Yeah. My thought is, if you're testing, so leave out uh, integration tests because those are naturally a bit more complicated. But if you are just testing models or uh, some service objects, whatever, uh, or Poro, then if you're... Oh, having to overcomplicate your fixtures or factories, then I think that there is an opportunity to maybe refactor some of your code. Because your factories or your fixtures shouldn't be too complicated. You know, if your model's big, then yeah, the factory's going to be big. But if you're having to rely on so many different fixtures, then if... And especially if it's... Let me preface it with... Especially if it's not a large application. If it's a... Small medium size application, and if your fixtures or factories are overcomplicated, or if your fixtures are overcomplicated, so you need to switch to factory bot, then I think that there's some opportunities to refactor your code.
3: I think there's like a a code smell in having tests that rely on things being in your database that are not integration tests. Um, so I, I've been tending to avoid factory bot for non-integration tests or, or at least I'll take an extra moment to think about does this, does this need to be an object with all these attributes? Does this need to be an object in the database? I think like one thing that happens is Factory Bot and fixtures both make it really easy to put stuff in the database but doing things with the database is, is going to be slow in your test one way or another. And so if you can write your test with just like user.new instead of creating a user in the database, probably it makes sense to do that. Or like maybe you don't even really need user.new. Maybe it could just be a double or something like that. So I I've been kind of writing my tests in such a way that that like I avoid this problem altogether most of the time and, and like use factory bot kind of
5: sparingly. So I'm super glad that you brought that up because while I was I was thinking in the background while you guys were chatting, I was that's exactly one of the arguments I was going to make. I think even using fixtures right in most unit tests is typically a code smell to me, because unit tests should be, for the most part, from for the most part, pretty agnostic to state, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, maybe you have an app that has a lot of you know uh, models that have a bunch of state, or you know, I have an old app here that you know has tests, but that absolutely is a code smell. It might be something that you live with in your app or whatever, but I feel like when you're Talking about that ideal kind of unit test environment, you're not really dealing with a lot of uh, fixtures or factories at all. The other thing that I do have in disagreement, though, with, with Dave, that I wanted to bring up is Dave was like, Well, hey, look, sorry, I guess we're fighting today, Dave. I didn't know. Um, <laughs> I would have prepared more. Uh, but uh, you were just all like, Hey, you know, like this is a thing that you do to make yourself happy. So I like linked in, in chat for everybody, and we'll put this in show notes too. But I linked you know the Ruby on Rails doctrine or right, and number one on that list is optimizing for programmer happiness. Just want to throw out there that that's that's number one and uh, you know sticking with rails is is basically number three on this list. The menu is omikaze or I don't ever know how to pronounce that word, but right just throwing that out there
0: so. <laughs> If it was optimized for programmer happiness, then Factory Bot would be included in Rails Core. Boom. I
5: don't Said know, it. but it doesn't make everybody happy, I think is the answer <laughs> yeah. to that. Or it doesn't make DHH Dave, happy.
4: Dave's point, I think, was, was valid though, which is you're introducing a dependency and that makes you less happy. Because what happens is when a new version of Rails comes out or they rename Factory Bot, like that's going to involve you going back and making code changes because you introduced that dependency and you're not happy having to go and do that. So you might be happy at the time, but now it's a compromise because you're not (laughs) going to be happy. Except
3: me because I love upgrading things. And I love when they break.
4: Except for Daniel because he likes to upgrade. When a library so,
3: uh, breaks, that it means I get to go dig in. It's,
4: it's I, I, I did want to back up though to the idea about unit tests. Like I think that that has been a war in the Rails community for a long time. And I don't know if it was led by DHH or, or who, but they've eventually just, they've given up on calling it a unit test. Like, let's be real. It's a model test. It's not right. a unit test. And so in the, I have tons of model tests that are not unit tests. They would not pass that a new uh, let's say it's a user, but a user also has a credit card and a subscription and a role and all these other mm. things um, that I need to be able to test that uh, I can do certain things about it. And as much as we try to to isolate in our unit tests to the point where you know I could stub everything, uh, it, that just it takes it it's just too hard. And so calling it a model test, I think, gets us around. You know, it's not a pure unit test.
5: That's super interesting because. When I was saying unit tests, I actually don't... I have a lot of unit tests around my models, right? But I don't consider the kind of tests that you're talking about to be unit tests. I just call them like another kind of... Fe- I, I call everything that's an integration test or, or complicated tests like that just feature tests, just because that's sort of the word that I got from spec one time and I thought it fit, right? Because to me, when you are taking, hey, I need to know about the interplay between my user and this user's credit cards and, you know, I don't know, something that they own or whatever, right? Like, to me, that's almost an integration test. Even though I'm not including the web, like, I'm totally grabbing things from different places in my app and testing them together. So for me, that was always, that's fair. I, I appreciate you putting, putting yeah, the, language the Rails around
4: opinion, that. The, the Rails opinion is that they're called model tests, but it's really... You definitely see a lot of different terms that people use. I try to stick to Rails opinion when I can, and like we use Mini Test, and I'm I'm with Dave. I don't want to introduce dependencies. And any time we add a dependency to our apps, it's something that there's a lot of debate before we
0: ended up doing it. Yeah, and I think that for the most part, if we are having to stub out or not stub out, if we're having to create factories or fixtures for our unit tests or model tests. Because this particular model depends on another model. If it's just an association, then I think that's okay. And usually, depending on the scenario, like the credit card subscription kind of thing, I'll consider that more of an integration test, even though it's living within the same uh, application. However, I think that where we've kind of bitten the bullet, and I blame Rails for this, it's callbacks. Callbacks, I think, has been the biggest pain point in Rails because something happens, you have no idea who the culprit is for the reason why your database is now in this state. And it's some weird callback somewhere within your application They called a different callback, that called a different callback that was pushed to a background job, and now a different callback is called. So I think that's where... I found myself in trouble because I had overcomplicated my business logic to have so many dependencies on dependencies to other models that I could not test in isolation. And I think that's where I have to resort to something like FactoryBot because I have overcomplicated my business logic and did not segregate things appropriately to make my testing easier.
3: Dave, would you say that um, callbacks smell like roast beef? <laughs> the roast beef that is old.
5: <laughs>
4: yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and the more that I work with the Rails, the more that I, I hate callbacks. The more I hate the callbacks that I've written because exactly yeah. how you described.
5: I it's- assume that you wrote these callbacks like 10 years ago because I feel like we agreed 10 years ago that callbacks were the worst idea. Yeah. And, and for some reason, people kept using them. And I don't, I don't know who keeps teaching that to people.
0: I mean, honestly, 10 years ago, callbacks were freaking amazing. Like they could do so much for me. Today, it's I like, quit. why are we using callbacks?
5: Yeah. T- 10 isn't fair. I think it's.
0: Callbacks, when callbacks started coming out, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can do this
4: in a callback. And so you're pulling it out, and oh, look, it's so much simpler now. And it's all. But now you're looking back and you're like, who's the culprit? Who's the one that did this? <laughs> oh, there you go. There's a callback.
3: Seems like there's virtually always a way to do the thing you want to do in callbacks, not using a callback. And you yeah. should probably usually use the not a callback version. Right.
4: Well, Daniel, I think what you said earlier, I am so guilty of you had talked about earlier when you know a thing, when you know a pattern, you just keep applying it, right? Sure. Yeah, and yeah. so what happens is you read a cool article about how somebody's using callbacks and you're like, oh my gosh, callbacks are the way to go. And so now every time you're writing a model, you're you're figuring out what the callbacks are gonna be and you're adding them in there and it's just
3: it's just overused. It's like uh, like my my First thing I ever built, where everything had method missing
0: in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have so I mean, like you guys are saying, there are so many different alternatives. You know, even like a token generator. If you have a token on a model record, you could do the has uh, has secure token method within Rails to automatically generate that for you. You know, you don't have to create your own callback for it. But yeah. So, and, and then there's uh, going to be
3: that one time where you want to write a job that like creates a user but doesn't create a token, and then you're somehow screwed. Like <laughs> it seems to always happen that there's this thing that you want to always be true, there except for this one time.
4: Mm-hmm. One uh, another thing that we use Factory Bot for, which I, I don't know if you guys have other applications for this, but for all of our apps, we have like demo areas or staging areas that we want to fill with fake data, but you know, it gets pretty boring looking at 100 random names that are generated. So we use the FactoryBot to be able to fill it with the data dictionary that makes it look easier. Like we have one that's in the medical space. And so I can actually populate the factory with real medic- medicine names. And that's what it uses to just generate random stuff. And I can, I can push that out to our staging server and it looks real and it gives something uh, for people to work with.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of people are using factory bot for similar purposes. It it's not necessarily what the library was originally intended to do, but I'm all for it. I I use it like that. Also, like if I'm playing around in the Rails console and I want to just make something that's valid and throw it in the database and play around a bit, I'll I'll use FactoryBot for that as well.
4: Yeah, I think it's a nice side effect of having the library available in your app is that you can now use it. All of our apps have a populate script that. We can run just to populate, you know, random data, and it made those populate scripts a lot easier to uh, look at and understand what they were doing.
5: This is one of my only use cases for the Faker gem as well.
4: Yeah, that's true. We use. Faker Gym, yeah.
5: <laughs> I I had an app, or I was working on an app a while back that used the Faker gem in tests, and I like swore off it for a long time until I was generating data, and then I was like, oh, now I have a good use for it. <laughs>
0: right. And the nice thing about using something like the Faker gem is you're going to find edge cases. In your application, like the tests are just randomly failing now, or, you know, it's because of some weird constraint that you had that you did not anticipate or that you forgot about. Yeah. And what would happen is we would have our designers and they would turn it over and all their names
4: were always nice and pretty and small and they fit. But when you'd run it through your, your populate script, where now you're filling it with just fake, you know, information from Faker that's when it really highlights even issues with the design that it just doesn't look mm-hmm. right anymore. And so they go, where do you come up with this name? Like, I didn't come up with it. It's just from Faker. It's just made up.
5: Don't shoot the messenger. Come on.
4: Right. Yeah. But mm-hmm. those edge cases, I think that's a really good point. It finds those edge cases. We also find that it, it happens. Unfortunately, it happens in our tests too, where you'll have a test that fails, but it failed because it's, it's using Factory Bot to actually create the thing that's being tested. And so then you've got to figure out, oh crap, what, what caused it to fail? But it doesn't fail every time. It only fails sometimes. But you wouldn't catch that with just a fixture because the fixture is always going to be the same, which is good until you run into that problem.
3: Some of that talk about names reminded me of, of this thing that somebody here at Thoughtbot shared with me. Falsehoods programmers believe about names. There's just a list of 40 things that are assumptions yeah. that we often make when we're we're like adding a name field for example people have exactly one canonical full name or another another one people's first names are last names are by necessity different these are things that are not true number 40 is my favorite people have names so like what do you what do you do if somebody doesn't have something they can input into your first and last name field it's fascinating document I, I shared that in the chat, and can maybe put that in the show
0: notes. I like twelve and thirteen. People's names are case sensitive. People's names are case insensitive. <laughs> right,
1: right. <laughs> I uh, I've been reading your blog. I read your blog, and I listened to your SoundCloud because it's my first podcast. So I thought I'd go in deep, you know, and really, wow. really research things. But uh, one of the things you talked about on the blog was the um, Ruby VM sure. using Ruby VM to. Find out why you couldn't override the or method in sure. Ruby, and uh, I mean I've been doing Ruby for ten years. I never even knew there was a Ruby VM.
3: Sure, uh,
1: and I think a lot of other people don't either. So that was really helpful. I bought Ruby under a microscope and I was didn't just read it. Say that. <laughs> okay, I, I, yeah, I bought it, didn't read it. It joined the pile of books that needs to be read. But I was wondering if there were any similar deep Ruby tools that you've used while diving into your code bases and kind of finding out how things worked?
3: The, the stuff in the those blog posts was purely exploring things after reading Ruby under a microscope. I think a lot of those things haven't actually come up for real in my work. Like like normally, I don't really need to care how things in the, the Ruby VM are working. There's maybe been like one or two exceptions where I was like, "Why doesn't this behave the way I want it to?" And oh, there's like this this is not available in Ruby itself. It's like nice to be able to sort of poke around in Ruby itself. I don't actually know C, but I feel like after reading that book I, I'm able to like source dive a little more efficiently and kind of make sense of things, even though I don't really know C
4: I don't, I'm not familiar with Ruby VM. Can you tell us what is what's Ruby VM and how do you use it as a deep tool?
3: Oh boy, I, I, I'm honestly probably the wrong person to ask. Uh, like, I, I read this one book, and <laughs> there's a Ruby VM class. You can look at the instruction sequences, so you can like look at like how your Ruby program is actually going to kind of like run the way that the the Ruby v- virtual machine sees it, which can be just like an interesting exercise. It's been a while since I played around with that. So, honestly, uh, uh, Luke, having looked at this, probably knows more than I do at this point. <laughs> uh,
1: I, I assure you that's not the case. I do a lot of um, dot method when I'm uh, usually working uh-uh. on kind of custom projects people have abandoned, and the client comes along and they say, Can you fix this? And you say, Well, uh, I can for a price. <laughs> and uh, I do a lot of kind of, I use dot method, and sometimes I kind of take the class and I subtract object dot method to try and get rid of the non relevant methods for that object. But uh, are there better tools that I, you know yeah. of?
3: Yeah, I see what you're saying. So, like, if, if, you're, if you're debugging deep in the middle of something and you, you want to be able to kind of like explore further, yeah, there's definitely definitely some tools that I go to when like, digging through source code that I don't really understand. The method method is, is great. So like if you're inside a class and there's a method called foo, you can say method colon foo, and you get this method object that represents the foo method, and then you can call dot source location on that to find out where that method was defined. You can do what? I will say that again. Uh, maybe I can give a, a more realistic example let's say you're in the middle of a model somewhere, you're in an instance method, and you see that it calls .save bang. And maybe you're newer to Rails and you don't know where that method comes from. You can call, well, like, while well, running through this code, maybe with a debugger or with a, a binding.pry, you can start Sorry. execution of that code and, and call method colon save bang. That gives you back a Ruby object, which is like that method. And then there are methods on the method object. So if you did method colon save bang dot source location, it will tell you where savebang itself was
1: defined. Have you seen that integrated into uh, stuff like VS Code? That's a great question. I, I have no idea.
0: Using Solar Graph... Yeah. Within VS Code, you can usually jump to definition. Mm-hmm. That's been pretty helpful.
5: Does it jump you out to gems and therefore like the Rails gem itself?
0: No, but Ruby mine, the Ruby IDE, uh, does do that. It yes. will jump into gems.
3: And and is that like do you know the heuristic that it's using to be able to do that? Is it is it paying any attention to like where things go at runtime or is it just trying to
5: make educated guesses?
0: It has to be a bit more than an educated guess because it's pretty accurate.
5: I believe project. that RumiMine installs Ruby, right? Like you... you. Ah, no, that might be true. I think you can... I can use, You have to use reference Ruby. Yeah. It's been a long time since I used it. But I would say is like they show up to every Rails comp. So I wouldn't be surprised if we could get them on here to tell us about that. They'd probably jump.
3: Uh, the the other the other one I use a lot is once I find the source location of the method, if I then find out that it's defined in say active record, I will go to my terminal and run bundle open active record. So bundle open the name of the gem and it will Mm -hmm. open wherever that gem happens to be installed um, on your computer with whatever editor you set as your default editor. And you can navigate around within that gem itself and, and start putting. Debuggers or, or print statements or binding prize inside of the gem. There's also a, a helpful command to clean up after you've done that, which is bundle pristine, the name of the gem. So, like, I will go into Rails and put like print statements all over the place. And then everywhere I run Rails, there's all these print statements. And I sometimes confuse myself. I'm like, why, did, why is Rails all of a sudden like printing out all this junk? When did they introduce that? And it's usually me. It's usually I was just debugging <laughs> something. But Bundle Pristine will like, give you a fresh copy of the, the
1: gem, wipe out all your... We need like a git diff for gems. Would git diff work? Is oh, that if you've, question? A, if, if you've hacked up a gem, <laughs> the gem isn't in a git repo, is it? I, I see. No, because it's a, it's a release version.
5: Yeah. Or it doesn't have a .git folder in it, at least. I see. Yeah, that
3: makes sense. But yeah, I'm a big fan of just like diving in, following the methods wherever they lead me. That's probably one of the biggest differences between when I first started programming and now. It's like when I first started programming, the moment the stack trace got out of my application code, that was that was it. I was done. I could not possibly go any further. But now, like I get a lot of joy out of continuing deeper and deeper in. I, I have the tendency to, like, go deeper than I probably should. It's like, oh, cool, I'm going to, like, learn how active record works now. And, and if I took a step back up, I would maybe see that there was... Really- the
1: question for you about go, maybe going too deep is the wrong word, but um, uh, I was listening to your, your SoundCloud, and I res- read in your thing that you studied music under Milton Babbitt. I did, he was around before Lord of the Rings was written, <laughs> and uh, he wrote it in this in 1916. And, and I studied with him when he was in his 90s. This is this is quite a famous guy in the world of the avant-garde because um, it turns out he wrote he wrote a um, he wrote a, a, an article which which should not have been called but was called. <laughs> right. Who cares if you listen? And I read this article, and it makes a really interesting point. Um, I think what he was saying, and of course he wanted to be an expert, is that the um, activity of composing music is not just churning out the next big hit, but it's also scientific research that pushes the boundaries of what music is itself. So do you think there's a parallel area in the world of software development that promises cutting-edge advancement? Do you see a, a kind of separation in software world between apps and sites for clients and kind of mad hacks for the community itself?
3: That's a great question. I mean, probably. Like, there's, academia is, is a thing for computer science. Like, you can go and get deep into research and, and study computer science as an academic pursuit. So that, I mean, that's probably the equivalent. And I I think that's what Babbitt was kind of saying is like, it should be fine for composers to like kind of withdraw a bit from, from having to like put on public concerts that thousands of people attend and love. And like, maybe it's fine if composers will write music for other composers and like try things out in the safety of academia and, and, and research there maybe before presenting it to a larger community. Um, So I I don't know a lot about what's happening in academia for computer science. I, I never went through that. So I kind of don't know much about that world, but I imagine there's there's a lot going on there that like isn't immediately relevant to our jobs, but but might be eventually.
4: Is anyone on the panel? Does anyone on the panel have a background? in academia related to computers?
1: I failed a PhD. In? in computer science? Artificial intelligence.
4: Are you going to elaborate on that? Or <laughs> <is> that
1: <it? laughs> Just it. leave that That's there. Uh, I, I can. Um, yeah, so I was doing a uh, PhD in uh, AI for robot navigation around uh, 2005, and I failed it. In, in the sense that you, you like, didn't want to continue? <laughs> the or? robot didn't make it. No, it was, um, it was underwater navigation and uh, things, ev- events occurred. Events, dear boy, events. And uh, events occurred. Uh, the plus side was the paper was written. So even though I didn't get the, um, the thesis done, I did publish some of my work. And it's been fun over the years to go on Google Scholar and find the one article and kind of see the citations creep up as mm-hmm. all of this weird stuff I was doing back in 2004 has suddenly in the world of kind of drones and self-driving cars become mainstream.
3: Mm-mm-mm.
1: Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, after listening to your music and see it's kind of, it's cutting-edge music. Daniel's music is, is cut, is only, whoa, oof. There's, it's, there's some, it's
3: many years old now. I, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> it's, it's,
5: uh, it's,
1: it's, 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 good, it's good stuff. Wow. My disclaimer my sister was a classical musician so okay. right yeah she 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 did that for a bit and like you she had to go and make some money so uh, she became a doctor right i know dreadful. That's how it works oh oh no 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 I, I think i think she'd be better off helping people with music quite frankly it doesn't pay good that's that's <laughs>
5: how, that's that's how i got about my music teachers were like john let's sit you down we need to talk to you you're bass. you're not going to make a dime until you're about 55 when your basso comes in. They're like, so you can teach voice lessons or you can do something else. So I'm not but teaching what, voice
1: lessons. <laughs> what I really miss about academia and what it what was what a great experience was that feeling of kind of no one's tried this before, you know, and a uh, day job, I kind of write Ruby for manufacturing production systems and this kind of thing. And you've got this enormous pressure on you to kind of deliver within a, a uh, commercial time scale, you know, because you want to deliver for the client, you want to make it work. But then I've kind of got this other relationship with the code that says, I wonder what would happen if I did this.
0: Yeah. So I think we're starting to approach our time here. So, Daniel, if people want to reach out to you or follow you, where should they go?
3: I guess Twitter is probably the most reliable, although it might take me a little while. I like, I use Twitter heavily at conferences and then. Hardly at all in between. But yeah, my, my Twitter is music related. It is dodeca daniel. That's D-O-D-E-C-A for the number 12, which is how many musical notes there are. So dodeca daniel on Twitter would probably
1: be a decent way. Totally awesome. a music nerd joke. <laughs> I did not get that. Wow.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I don't
3: understand it. So. I made that uh, Twitter handle at my first conference, which was a music theory conference.
5: If you count all the white... And black keys in between a C and a C, there are 12 of them, right? There's 12 notes in the, in the Western scale. All
2: right.
3: right, yeah. C, C-sharp, D, D-sharp, E, D, et cetera. After 12, you get back to a, a C. All right. It right. is well, a, let's a mod 12 universe, if that helps
2: <laughs> anyone. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer.
0: Uh, Tom, do you want to start us off? I don't. I don't have a pick this week. I can't think of one. All right? Somebody else. Fair enough. Yeah, John.
5: I've got you. I've got you this week. So you
4: can have, you can have two. You can take one from me.
5: Um, we'll see. I definitely have a good solid one. So I I was reminded this week because I had to. I um my Bluetooth uh earpiece is finally dead after like three years almost, which. To me, okay, so I'm really into like things that have like high value for cost, right? I'm really into high value for cost ratios. So that's that's very big to me. So I know that everybody's like super into like the earbud thing right now, but I have a, uh, I just care about you know Bluetooth connection on my phone, and then it goes in my ear and it's pretty comfortable. But I, the first time I bought this thing, um, I had it for a year and a half, and then I lost it, so I had to buy another one. But yeah, so basically, like. I can at least say that it lasts a year and a half and it costs a hundred bucks. And I've been super happy with that kind of value. So, um, but it was just the Plantronics Voyager 5200. It's nice. I don't know. Has pretty good sound quality, all the things that I care about. And I can listen to a podcast for four hours or take a phone call when I'm like driving, you know, in the middle of nowhere, which is exactly what I use it for. So it's pretty sweet. I'm sure there are awesome other Bluetooth
1: things out there, but I've been very happy with it. So that's what I got.
0: And Luke, do you have any
1: picks? I'll continue the audio picks. It's an app called Boom 3D. And it's some kind of preamp for the Mac. And sometimes I'm listening to something and the volume's too low and it just boosts the audio up. It's as simple as that. It just makes the sound louder on a system level. Boom 3D.
0: Nice. Cool. I'll jump in with a few picks. My first pick is Action Text, which I've recently converted all of Drift and Ruby episodes and comment sections over to Action Text. And I've been loving it. It's been a huge change. I don't have to worry about text formatting or anything anymore. It just works. So it's based on the Tricks editor and it's been a uh, really, really nice experience. And my second pick is part hand sanitizer and part just washing your hands properly, you know, keyword properly. Uh just with the recent news and stuff going on, take the 20 seconds to properly scrub your hands and use hand sanitizer. They make alcohol free sanitizers if your hands are dry and sensitive uh to that kind of stuff. So I mean it's due diligence and just our part of responsibility and staying healthy. And Daniel, do you have any picks?
3: Yeah, I have a couple and and I just got a new one based on what you just said, which is which is related. My pick is is I don't know if this counts as a pick. Not buying a mask if you're if you're healthy. There's like shortages of masks and if all the healthy people buy them all, then they're not available for like hospital staff and sick people and and then the people who like really need to protect themselves. So yeah. let's not cause a mass shortage if we if we haven't already. Uh, <laughs> but also, yeah, wash your hands. That's definitely
1: a great thing.
0: Dude, my wife went to Costco the other day. Could not find any toilet paper. I mean, it's just all sold oh, right. Like, I don't, I don't know why.
1: Yeah, Costco.
0: Yeah. So I mean, they don't just sell like one or two rolls or four rolls at a time. They sell like wow. thirty rolls. Right. Like. And they usually have it stacked to the ceiling. So I mean, people were definitely hoarding toilet paper. So apparently in the new world, toilet paper is gonna be the commodity, <laughs> the <got currency>.
5: it. <laughs> so. Dude, It's bread and milk out here for whatever reason. That's what people buy when they're hoarding.
3: <laughs> but but the ones that I the ones that I'd been thinking about were a book, The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer that talks about like different differences in cultures and and how that affects Working together with people from different cultures, so like uh, as an example, the way people communicate like how direct people are can can be very different in different cultures and if you're commu- if you're from a very direct culture and you 're communicating with somebody that like isn't used to that kind of directness, there can be some tension there so like how do you navigate that fascinating book would highly recommend it uh, re- recommend it. The next one is uh I've been learning a new instrument since last January. It is an instrument that was popular uh, during the Renaissance and the Baroque period, and then kind of fell out of favor. The, the violin family sort of won over this family. The instrument is called the viola da gamba. Da gamba being the Italian for of the leg, because you, you hold it like a cello with, with your legs. It's sort of like a cross between a cello and, and a guitar. You, you bow it like a cello, but it's got six strings and frets. So I've been playing that instrument for the past year, and it's excellent. You should go check it out. It's a gorgeous <laughs> instrument. And it's kind of had a revival over the past 25 years. There was a, there was a movie about a viola de gamba player called "Tous les Matins du monde. All, all the mornings of the world, I think that translates to. Fantastic instrument. Uh, and then the last one is, I've been working on a non-rails project on my Last client. It's like service oriented architecture, Python, Python, gRPC, GraphQL, React. There's like so many things. So, my last pick is Rails. <laughs> uh, <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's just like, uh, it's so fantastic. It's just a, a wonderful, wonderful library. And, and in particular, I, I'm missing the like, Rails sort of JavaScript way. And I mean like full on with Webpacker, Stimulus, turbo Links, all of it. I, I want it all. Amen. So thanks Rails. <laughs> thanks everybody involved in contributing to Rails.
0: Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. It was a real treat. Yeah, this was fun.
5: Definitely. Though, uh, can you also add, uh, I don't know if you have a link to it, but you, you had mentioned that you had that ThoughtBot diversity um, suggestions for meetings.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll send a link. We have this in all of our meeting rooms at Thoughtbot. It is a guide to inclusive meetings. I'll send a link to that. I'll also send a link to um, pair programming checklist. Okay, uh, we'll I, that I too. Of because I think it, the last episode was about pairing. Um, it was. And it just got me thinking that, yeah, we have this checklist, which I think
5: could, could help. Uh, yeah, we'll add those help. as picks too, because even though we didn't get to it, we should, we should at least put those up there.
0: Definitely. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And for now, we'll talk to you later. Great.
1: Thanks, all.
5: Thank you. Take care.
1: Thank you.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.